Gerald Chin was uh, cold, lonely, and conscious of his own mortality after Jack from the crew of old-timers who whiled away mornings at McDonald's passed away. Gerald wasn't especially close to Jack, but liked him more than most of the breakfast crew, not least of all because he was the one who'd invited Gerald into the circle in the first place. He'd been Gerald's son-in-law's uncle. Whatever that made the two of them, it had been enough to establish a connection, enough for Jack to recognize a fellow senior citizen in need of connection. After the funeral, Gerald decided to make some changes to his life. After a lifetime of thrift, keeping his house heated only up to 50 degrees in the coldest nights of winter, using his coffee grounds twice, clipping coupons from the Sunday newspaper, Gerald gave in to an indulgence. His kids were long out of the house, and his daughter never brought the grandkids to his place anyway. He was divorced. It was time to keep himself warm. He bought a space heater on a deep discount for 60 bucks, a big hunk of metal shaped like a satellite dish designed to radiate heat in one specific direction, which was all that was necessary to warm one specific person. The space heater was heavy, but he managed to balance it at a precarious perch in the shopping cart, tipping into his car and then grappling it by slow steps with lots of brakes from the trunk of the car through the garage into the house. He'd have to be careful about turning it off when it wasn't when he wasn't using it because he knew space heaters could be fire hazards. It might be a drain on electricity too, but he figured he could lower the thermostat to 40 degrees, just warm enough to keep the pipes from freezing and otherwise rely on his new acquisition. He set up the heater on the coffee table, facing the sofa where he ate most meals, watched TV and read the newspaper. As its silver color first turned to glowing orange, he thought it was sort of beautiful. Hello everyone, my name is Sarah Edmonds. I am the Editor-in-Chief of Her Page and Screen Magazine. I'm here today with Michael Chin, author of After Jack Died, which we had the honor of publishing in our second issue. Thank you so much for being here. Ah, oh, thank you for having me. Just to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about what After Jack Died is about? Yeah, so this is a story about uh, an older man who is kind of trying to find purpose in his life. Uh, the title references um, a friend of his who passes away, and that's sort of the inciting incident in a way that happens kind of before the story even happens, um, that gets him to kind of come out of his shell a little bit and sort of try to uh, connect more with some people um, who he might uh, you have more kind of appreciable connections to. Um, and of course, by the space heater that uh, factors pretty heavily into the beginning and ends of the story. Awesome. And what inspired you to write this story? Where does it come from? Yeah, so this story, um, it's actually, it's part of a larger um, collection of linked stories I've been working on the last few years um, that may or may not become a, a novel. I've kind of been toying with if there's enough links and if I can just weed out certain parts and focus on other kind of threads in between if it's really is actually supposed to be a novel. Uh, but but it's, it's so um, I had written you know, a full draft of the first, I think it was 11 stories. Um, and I'd shared them with a couple of my readers to kind of get some feedback and notes and whatnot. And uh, this character, Gerald Chin, um, he had not had a story of his own previously. He's the father of one of the major characters in the story. Um, and uh, both of the, the main readers I had look at a bunch of the stories um, gave back kind of the feedback that they thought this guy was really interesting and they, they, they'd like to see more of him on the page. Um, and he's very loosely based on my father. Um, so that there's, there are certainly a lot of differences in, in, in how they live and kind of how they operate in the world. Uh, but some of the things like, like being spendthrifts and keeping the thermostat down and 
Um, also buying this space heater, that, that's another piece that kind of pulls from real life that my father at one point bought this enormous space heater that looks like an enormous fire hazard. And I've sort of been worried he's going to burn his house down ever since. It's, I probably shouldn't laugh at that, but uh, it's been like a decade now and he, he hasn't burned it down. So I, I trust he knows what he's doing with it. Um, but those pieces pr pretty directly kind of fed in. And so Gerald has certainly kind of become his own character specifically with pursuing poetry and all that, that that's nothing my, my father's ever done. But, um, but, but yeah, so he sort of, you know, overlaps with characters from other stories. Um, ultimately, uh, J Jack is also the, the father of another set of characters who kind of has a cameo in a couple other stories. And so it, it all sort of, you know, we weaves together now. But this was actually the first um, standalone story from the that group of stories that actually has made its way out into the world, though. Hey, that's awesome. Um, if if slash when, when the collection comes into being and gets released as a whole, you have to let us know. It sounds so interesting. Oh, no, th th thank you very much. And yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure if or when that ever happens, I'll, I'll be shouting it from the rooftop. So, sure <laughs> Absolutely. Um, one thing that really drew a lot of our editors to this story was uh, the character of Gerald and his age. And that sounds a little odd at first, but I feel like there aren't many stories out there that are written about characters over the age of 40 and that aren't just about endings. And the story is not just about endings. It starts with this title that implies endings after Jack died. It's very much a life has come to an end. We're looking at the afterwards of that. But we've already talked a little bit about inspiration, but did you discover anything new or interesting that specifically came from writing about an older character in this way? Yeah, uh, I think it's a, it's a really good observation. I, I think you're right that they're sort of underrepresented um, in, in a lot of literature that we see. Uh, and yeah, and I think, you know, I, I myself, I haven't written a ton about older characters. I, I have one other short story in the world that's very specifically about kind of the geriatric set. But, um, but, but yeah, I think that with this one, a lot of it was sort of exploring um, what happens when you've sort of already lived a life and yet you still have a life ahead of you. And so, um, you know, the... the kind of the sense of Gerald that, that I, I have is that he, you know, felt as though he kind of already lived his life. He kind of resigned himself to, okay, I'm going to have these uh, old people who I see at McDonald's who I'm just in a similar age bracket with. So by default, we'll, we'll be sort of friends, even though I don't like them. Um, and then, you know, kind of coming to that place of like, well, no, I still, I'm still alive. And, you know, my, my kids have their own lives. And I don't see them very much anymore. Um, what, what, what can I do to kind of, you know, start my own life? And, um, the connections here, um, you know, again, there's pieces here that borrow from different pockets of real life. Um, you know, for example, um, again, going back to my father, who was largely the inspiration for Gerald's character. Um, you know, after he divorced with my my mother, uh, he he sort of you know started out sort of insular, and then he started um, a little bit of online dating, and then he uh, that led to sort of a a sort of career in ballroom dancing uh, in the local scene that. Uh, ultimately led to meeting a bunch of other people and now his girlfriend who he's been with for like five or six years now um, in ways that I never would have guessed any of this for him right but but it's sort of that that thing where you know there, there's some overlap in, in Gerald's journey but again there's some, some real differences there but but in that sense of that um, you know I, in my head he's sort of frozen as my father who just kind of you know lives in our old house and kind of you know daughters around there 
but he's still living his life, right? I mean, I, I haven't lived in that house for, I mean, now it's been more of my life I've lived out of the house than in it. So, um, you know, with, with for him, uh, it's, it's a whole other kind of section of his life that, you know, I don't factor in that that prominently. I, you know, see him here and there. We visit each other, you know, once every few years. Um, but he's got his own kind of existence. And so I think just kind of, you know, unfurling all of that, getting into kind of Gerald's mind of, what would this character still want to do? What's kind of the unfinished business? This whole poetry thing, I think for him is sort of a, you know, a vague aspiration that it's like, well, I have nothing but time now and only, you know, so much of it. So, you know, maybe I, maybe I do this. Maybe I, I see what happens and take this to an open mic night and be a complete fish out of water there. But, but that leads to kind of the next connection and, you know, onward from there. Absolutely. I love that. I love the whole idea of exploring what comes after our typical idea of a life cycle because we do have this idea of you live your life you raise children and then you're a parent what's next there's always there's always a next um so I love how you explore that and I think you explore it very very well there's a lot of nuance to it it's very inspirational I I want to be older and doing slime poetry I think that would be amazing I mean, now, now that I, I'm also a father to to a five year old, so you know, we we have many years before I reach that stage of doddering old man with the empty nest. But uh, but eventually, um, you know, hopefully, at least it will be coming for me. So so yeah, so I guess that is kind of an inspiration that there there is life after that, as you said, tr traditional life cycle sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, could you just take a minute and walk us through what your writing process looks like from like idea to finished product? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm a super prolific um, both idea generator and first draft writer. Um, I, I always kind of drag my feet on revision. That's the part where the pipeline sort of slows down. Um, but you know, I, I have this Word document. I think it's like 40 pages now of just story ideas. So that like whenever the time comes, I you know, I, I, there's there's never a shortage of ideas. And oftentimes, I come up with something new that I start writing before I ever go back to that that list of ideas I've you know, recorded over the years. Um, but see, so, yeah, so I, ideas are kind of never, never the challenge. Um, and and writing first drafts, um, I tend to be pretty regimented about it when I'm working on first drafts. Where, um, you know, depending on what else is going on in life and and all that, um, I say I'm going to write you know 500 words a day until I have a first draft, or a thousand words a day if I have a little bit more time, um, or, or or sometimes it's more time increment based, where it's like I've got 15 minutes at this point. I've got a lot of stuff going on. Like so, 15 minutes a day, whatever happens during that time happens during that time. Uh, and I'm a big believer in the idea that these small increments kind of add up, um, especially, you know, in, in fatherhood and I teach full time and, you know, I've got all kinds of other, you know, other responsibilities outside the house. Um, I find that if I wait for like that, you know, two hour chunk where I can, you know, be, be inspired and, and do the writing, it's just never going to happen or, or, or at least it's not going to happen, you know, enough that I'm going to have a short story done in a year's time. And so, you know, but if I keep chipping away at it, you know, do those little little increments, I can, you know, usually churn out a draft within, you know, two or three weeks, at least sometimes quicker, depending on, you know, length, length of the story and all that. Um, but, but yeah, so, so that's where, um, you know, all, all of these kind of link stories in particular sort of came from. Um, this was sort of height of the pandemic that uh, I was, you know, working on all of these and I had a little bit more time because I wasn't commuting to work during that time. But um, but but yeah, but this this whole um, this project um, is, is one that I feel really strongly about. Um, and so it's one that I'm trying to really do my due diligence. I think one of the consequences of, of sort of not not embracing the revision process traditionally uh, is that I tend to send out work a little before I probably should. Um, and, and I still do that sometimes. But 
Uh, I think there, there's, there can be value in that because I'm not too precious about it. And I think I'm not, I'm certainly not guilty of like, well, you waited like years and, and now it's kind of, you know, you, you haven't published anything in years and, and, you know, where the time has passed for this story. Um, that's never been the problem, but I do, I do run into the opposite issue sometimes where I think I start sending something out and then realize um, as the rejections start to flow in, like, oh yeah, that one really needed like two more drafts before it was going to be ready. So, so, so this collection—that's part of why after Jack died—is is the first and today only story that it's made it out into the world. Uh, there's a couple other I, I've started sending out that haven't made it anywhere yet. Um, but but the bulk of the stories are are on draft two or draft three, and I'm you know, pretty intensively kind of trying to uh, rewrite them. Um, there, there's a book by Matt Bell called uh, Refuse to Be Done that's all, all about revision that um, I, I read over this past year and really kind of kind of took to heart and sort of the, the idea of, you know, iterative drafting. And uh, he, he has a whole thing about um, where possible, don't, don't revise, rewrite. And, and so, you know, it's, it's too easy just to hold on to sloppy stuff when you're just trying to be efficient about it. But if you say, you know, I have this scene that I think, you know, the core of what happens, I, I want to keep in the manuscript. But it's not good the, the way that it is. J just rewrite it. J just, just kind of you know, you still have the version of you still refer to it for your know, specific notes and details. But on the whole, just just rewrite it, and it's probably going to be better for that. So that that's been a, a new part of my process, especially over the last year or so. I love that advice. I love that advice. I think it's always interesting to take that too and to look back at work and if you can see that it's bad, then that means you've grown and you've gained the skill to rewrite it better. Right. So are you inspired by any particular authors works out there? Is there anyone you kind of like, oh, I want to write like them? Yeah, yeah. I'd say, you know, there, there, there's there been a ton of influences. And I think one thing I sort of pride myself on is, is reading really widely. And so, um, you know, a, a lot of, you know, more, more traditional literary stuff, I try to read a fair amount of contemporary literature, just to kind of know what's going on and, you know, be, be a part of that. Um, but, but also reading more pop stuff, right? Um, like this will probably come up in other points of the conversation too, but I, I'm a huge professional wrestling fan. And so um, I think I really like kind of the nexus of where different influences can kind of come together. Um, so for example, right now I'm reading an old collection by John Cheever. Um, up in my queue is the autobiography of John Moxley, who's a fairly prominent professional wrestler. Um, I, I don't know of very many authors who have the fusion of those two things going on in their head, right? And again, letting them influence them. Um, and not to say both are going to show up, you know, very directly in my work, but, uh, but, but yeah, but I do think, um, you know, I think reading a lot of stuff, it kind of un can unlock different things, especially in combination with each other. Um, you know, in the relatively recent history, um, Maggie Nelson was, was a big inspiration for me. I was reading a lot of her, her, you know, nonfiction, it's of her poetry. Um, there's, uh, Carrie Howley, who's, whose book Throne, um, I, I teach roughly every other year, um, that's, um, you know, another book, book of nonfiction, although it plays with that line of fact and fiction in some really interesting ways. Um, but, but, but yeah, so, so you know, a whole bunch of them. Um, I'm trying to think of, there was someone I was just, just going to name. Oh, I remember Richard Russo is another one. Uh, but, but yeah, just uh, you know, trying to read a spectrum of stuff is kind of my, my biggest thing. I, I always refer to John Irving as sort of my, my gateway drug into to, to literature. And, uh, you know, I, I've kind of, I don't want to say outgrown him because obviously he's you know really important you know American novelist um, but 
as a as a teenager, I sort of wanted to be him, and I, I wrote a very bad Irving style novel at, at one point in my late teens, early twenties. Um, and now I recognize I'm a very different author than he is, and there's parts of his work that I don't really like at this point. But but nonetheless, you know, he, he's sort of one of the the, the OGs, as the kids say, um, and, and kind of influencing how I look at writing. We, I feel like we all have that one like very 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 early novel that's just like oh I want to write that and then yeah <laughs> yeah speaking of where you got started how did you first get into writing where did you start with that yeah so um that's one thing where I, I've just kind of always been, been a writer um so I remember when when I was like five or six years old um, when I first learned how to read, I never actually liked reading when, when I was like, like until I was like, like 10 or 11 or 12, somewhere in that range. Um, up until that point, um, I, I just liked the, the writing part of it. I like kind of the, the imagination piece of it. And and a lot of it was really derivative, sort of, you know, fan fiction sort of stuff based on on 8-bit Nintendo games. Like, I, I think my first stories were based on uh, Castlevania and Super Mario Brothers. Um, you know, and, and it wasn't, you know, by any stretch, you know, good writing, even for that age standard. Like, I couldn't, in good conscience, tell a kid, oh, this is great. Uh, but, uh, but, but it is... Uh, something that I think, you know, just I, I think a lot of my my writing over the years, especially up until like, like into my mid to late 20s, even I, I would say, was all sort of laying a foundation for just getting in the habit of putting words on a page mm -hmm. and sort of figure out how to do all of that. Um, so, you know, I, I, I wrote, you know, I think it was four novels throughout my high school years, um, and I self-published two of them at the time. And, and they're, they're bad. I mean, especially, especially the first one is just really bad. Um, really just sort of derivative and kind of cliche you know, in all sorts of ways. Um, but, but again, it's the whole, you know, getting reps in, get, getting the writing down. Um, and then in college, um, you know, I, I, my, my school didn't have a creative writing major properly. I had an English department, so I, I was an English major. Um, and I took all the creative writing classes I, I could get into um, and did a creative thesis. And I think that was, you know, a big step forward. Um, and for years, I kind of muddled through. I had a novel that I'd written at the end of high school that I had sort of the 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 foreknowledge of like I'm just not ready to write this book yet after I finished a draft of it like I, I believed in the story but I was like I, I've got to you know just get a little bit more experience and come back to spend more time and all that um, and I spent a good chunk of my my twenties after college revisiting that and writing multiple new drafts of it and trying different things um, and one of the most important decisions I made sometime in my my late twenties was to let it let it go to to, to give it up. Um, because they're just kind of fundamental flaws in the plot that were like, I thought this was really cool when I was 18 years old. I now recognize I just can't reconcile with, with sort of what I think is going to make sense as a story. Um, but, but I always say, so on one hand, you know, that was sort of heartbreaking to kind of, you know, work on something for that long and to give it up. Um, but by the same token, that was also so important just in the experience of revising and in trying to write it in so many different styles and voices um, that I learned so much as a writer. And I don't think it's coincidental that it was after I gave up that project that I started to actually place a lot more work in literary journals. And that ultimately led to you know, doing my MFA and, and getting my first book out. Um, and I think it was you know, having to do that and then to let that go. That was sort of you know, kind of that integral part of, of really becoming a, a, a quote unquote real, real writer for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that can be really, really important. They always say like, kill your darlings and it's hard yeah. the whole manuscript the whole manuscript is a darling um but the experience is definitely worth something absolutely um so you mentioned your first book could you tell us a little bit about it 
Yeah, so um, my first book is uh, You Might Forget the Sky Was Ever Blue. Um, it's a short story collection put out by uh, Duck Lake Books, which was, as it turned out, a very short-lived publisher. Um, they, they kind of folded not too long after uh, that, that book came out. Um, but it's um, mostly, I sort of thought it was like my, my greatest hits album of, uh, of short stories. And so there are, I think it's three stories in the collection that, that are linked to each other that have, you know, significantly overlapping characters and situations. Um, but, but otherwise, it's just sort of, you know, se separate stories that, you know, I think thematically sort, sort of speak to each other. It's very realist in its sensibility, um, has sort of a social consciousness to it. So the, the first story in the collection is called Prophecy, and um, it's my personal favorite story that, that, that I've published um, and originally came out with, with the Iron Horse Literary Review. But it's, um, it's just sort of a, a collage style thing that is sort of influenced by Maggie Nelson's Bluettes um, and sort of its structure. Um, but telling the story that's semi-autobiographical by placing some different time periods, but of a, a middle school, or actually, no, actually it's technically elementary school, uh, teacher working in inner city Baltimore um, during kind of the period of, uh, you know, Donald Trump's election and kind of early days of that. And sort of just meditating on on how the real world kind of intersects with, you know, very personal life and like interacting with kids and, and all this stuff. Um, I think that sort of sets the tone for a lot of what happens in, in the collection to follow. But 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 yeah, so so it's sort of a all over the place book. But but those, I think those are probably the connective things I could point out there. Okay, okay, that's interesting. It sounds interesting. Are we still able to purchase the book, even though the publisher? Yeah. So, so last I saw, you can still you know tra track down copies of it. Um, it's so it's. I don't, yeah, yeah, I can't tell you if you can still find them like on, on you know, sort of affordable as if they just put it out sort of on, on Amazon sort of, sort of things, but mm -hmm. yeah, there's still copies floating around out there for sure. Awesome. I also know that you have a novel, another novel. So I, I had the, 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 the three short story collections actually came out in pretty close succession. Okay. Um, my, my fourth book, what was the, the novel though? Um, so it's uh, My Grandfather's an Immigrant and, and So Is Yours. Um, yes, yeah, so that came out in uh, 2021 um, and is also sort of a semi-autobiographical uh, book. Um, I actually had one review that totally got it wrong and sort of thought that it was a memoir. And I was like, you know, if you look into this at all, I'm like 20 years older than the main character here. So that doesn't really work out. But but there are significant autobiographical elements that I've sort of, you know, put put, put on to that. So, uh, so, so, so that, that sort of works out. But yeah. Yeah. And out of out of all of your collection, your books, since there are numerous, which one is your most recent? Tell us about your newest work. Yeah, so so the newest one actually just came out th this past February. Um, so it's my, my first collection of essays. Um, and yeah, it, it was a very specific sort of process that led to this project. Um, I, I'd written probably about half the book um, just as piecemeal essays and, and some of them were actually blog posts and, and things like that that I found in the world over the years. Um, so I have an, another short story collection, as, as again, I'm, I'm a prolific drafter, right? <laughs> so I have another short story collection um, that I've been trying to, to get out there for years. Like, you know, I was starting to send it out at the same time as the late stages of sending out the first book. Uh, and I've been revising it, you know, ever since and that's resending it out. But um, I was starting to get kind of frustrated because I'd made like a couple short lists and so it got kind of close, but, you know, it didn't ultimately get selected for those things. And I was, you know, getting this place where you know, I was a little disappointed, a little frustrated. And I was like, well, while I'm in this place where I don't have the kind of career where I have to satisfy expectations, I don't have, you know, editors breathing down my neck for a specific cause, I don't have an agent to satisfy. Um, 
and I had this partnership with a cowboy jamboree press and they had published my, my two preceding books, The Long Way Home and My Grandfather's Immigrant and So Is Yours. And, and they seem to, you know, really kind of get my vibe and sort of, I think in general, if I believe in a project, they're probably going to believe in it too. Um, like, why not take advantage of this and do the most esoteric thing I can that, you know, maybe only 20 people will read, but no one's going to be mad if only 20 people buy this book. Um, so uh, it, it became this collection called Stories Wrestling Can Tell. Uh, the reference before the whole um, you know, wrestling kind of, you know, fanhood that's been a theme throughout my life. Um, it became into my life because my grandfather was a Chinese immigrant who actually never really learned how to speak English. Um, so when he came over here, um, pro wrestling was one of the few entertainment forms that he could fully access. Um, there weren't super complex rules. It was just sort of, you know, people fighting each other. He could tell by, you know, people cheering who the good guys were, people booing who the bad guys were. So he didn't need to, you know, follow the language or follow anything super complex or know, know any specific rules, just kind of do the basics to, to be able to follow this thing. Um, so he followed it, you know, from from really early on in his life, um, passed it on to my father who, who passed it on to me. And one thing that I explore in the book, because the whole book is sort of about, I, I frame it as um, the story of four generations of men in my family through the lens of watching wrestling. Um, and so what, one of the, the running threads through it, the kind of discoveries that I made when I was writing some of the later essays was, um, my grandfather, who I never felt very connected to just because we literally couldn't really communicate with each other, um, wrestling was sort of the thing. Like, um, he used to do this thing when we would visit them because they lived about a five-hour drive away from where, where I grew up. We'd see them two or three times a year. Uh, when we visited, he would always ask me, like, 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 who won the matches, right? And then, so, as a little kid, I was all too eager. I started taking notes down and writing down, you know, who won which matches, and I would you know, report it back to him very dutifully. Um, and as I grew into my teenage years, it was like, you're watching TV, you, you kind of know de facto who won these things or, um, you know, and, and also you're, you're like 60s plus years old, you still care this much about this wrestling thing. Um, but I realized in the process of writing, like that was his way of connecting with me. Like, like he had, you know, virtually no, no life experience that overlapped with mine. We just lived such different lives in such different places. Um, but this was one thing that we had in common that we could both talk about to the, to the extent that language kind of would cross over. And he could just describe, like, if he didn't understand the name of someone or how to describe him, he would say, like, like really big guy. And I, and I could kind of intuit, oh, you're probably talking about Sid Vicious then, um, and, and, you know, and, and, and work from there. Um, so, so in any event, yeah, so, so that, that whole essay collection, though, um, that became kind of the connective tissue is I, I have these letters that I've written to my late grandfather, um, kind of processing all of that and kind of thinking about what that relationship meant and what wrestling meant to him. Um, and so using that, and then I have a bunch of other essays about my, my son now and um, he, like, he, he does not yet get wrestling. I, I don't know if he ever will. And I, I'm sort of fine. It's, it's sort of a complicated thing to expose a kid to, I found, because I don't want to really, you know, inspire any violence from him or thinking that's okay. But at the same time, I also want to share this thing that I really like. Um, but he really loves wrestling figures, uh, like the action figures. And so there, there's a whole essay in the book called Guys and Dolls. And it's all about me remembering, um, you know, playing with my figures so kind of passionately when I was a kid. And now he sort of puts them in all these different situations, kind of ignores the fact that they're wrestlers, but he just has them act out, you know, various scenes. Um, but that's kind of a, a part of the lineage, a part of what's kind of been passed down in that way. So, so yeah, the four generations are my grandfather, my father, myself, and, and my son, and kind of just exploring all, all of those connections between. That sounds really interesting and really, really complex. Um, yeah. Was it difficult? breaking down all of like the personal connections for an essay for something that is meant to be read, even if just by 20 people. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, um, you know, I, I think there's ways in which it was a super easy book to write just because it's something I'm genuinely interested in. And like, I, I would have an idea, like, like, for example, I, I was thinking, like, could I have a, an essay that speaks to like the holidays and like, like, like Christmas time specifically? And remember that there was this whole scene that played out where this one wrestler um, dressed up as Santa Claus, but then revealed that he wasn't actually Santa Claus and kind of threatened to reveal to all the kids that there was no Santa Claus. Um, and sort of, uh, and then the good guys ran in and sort of beat him up and all that. And, and it's sort of this morality play where, um, you know, it's sort of, you know, it's supposed to be just kind of, you know, harmless holiday fun and whatnot. But when you kind of strip down layers of it, it's like, well, actually the bad guys were telling the truth in this situation and the good guys were trying to obscure something. Um, and how, what, what that really says about kind of, you know, what, what things that we hide from kids versus what truths we tell and, uh, all of that. So things like that were, were really kind of fun to just kind of explore and, and you know, get really esoteric about because, again, I wasn't writing for you know, a super broad audience or anything like that. Um, but I will say um, some of the stuff, um, for example, that there's an essay in there called To Be a Father that's just sort of meditating on my process of becoming a father and relating it to uh, my father, who I always had kind of a complicated relationship with, like. I've sort of arrived at a place in adulthood of, I think he was just doing the best he knew how, he just didn't know very well. Um, and so, um, you know, and a lot of us have those kinds of stories, but um, but writing out some scenes of like, you know, that there's this one very specific core memory I have where I, I spilled some, I think it was iced tea or lemonade or something, and him looking at me and saying, all you ever do is make more work for other people. Um, and he never apologized for it, you know, and, and we, we moved past it. I, I was like, you know, probably eight or nine years old when, when this happened. Um, but, you know, kind of exploring that, that idea of like, what kind of traumas do I hold on to that he doesn't even remember, right? That was just probably a passing moment for him that, you know, uh, he has now read the book. So I imagine he remembers it now, but, um, but I don't think that, um, you know, it really stood out to him. And so stuff like that, it was difficult to parse, um, you know, what, what I want to share in this space and, and what sort of fair, right? Because I, I, I was a little bit concerned with, um, you know, we all have parental issues, we all have, you know, kind of parental trauma, and I think, you know, I, I'm a big believer in the, the Flannery O'Connor quote that anyone who survives childhood has enough material to write about for a lifetime, um, and so I, I bring that into my fiction, I bring it into my nonfiction, but at the same time, not, not looking to be kind of unnecessarily cruel, right, and just kind of bring up, like, here's a list of times my dad was mean to me, um, you know, because that, that doesn't really help anything, I don't, I don't think it's a very interesting essay either. Um, and so, you know, figuring out where those lines were, what's useful to the narrative and what kind of speaks to, to other things I was trying to get at. Um, and, and wrestling, I think, was really useful in that just because if, if I couldn't find any connection back to that world and my memories of watching it, um, then usually that that kind of went to the cutting room floor. Usually that that wasn't kind of a fit for what I was going for in that project. Definitely. And this is a little bit more of a personal question, so you totally don't have to answer it if <laughs> you want to. Um, but did you and your father have a conversation after he read the book? Have you talked about it at all? Yeah. So, so um, we've talked twice. Um, once after he read the first 50 pages and once after he, he had finished the book. Um, so after he read the first 50 pages, his exact um, re response to it was, this seems like a good summary of parts of your life. And that was it. Um, and then um, the 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 video call that we had later, because he, he was just testing out, he had, a, he had a new tablet, he was seeing how video calling worked. Um, and so we were talking, he was like, yeah, I didn't realize how into action figures and getting wrestlers autographs you were. And that, and, and that was it. And I'm actually not into getting wrestlers autographs. Like there's a whole thing about meeting wrestlers and getting my, my pictures taken with it is one of the essays uh, sort of about. Uh, but actually, I'm not a big autograph guy. So he sort of miscaptured that piece of it but 
Um, I, I did kind of you know, read between the lines of a combination of some of this is just sort of, you know, uncomfortable to, to talk about. Um, and, and some of it, you know, he may have had sort of critique of like, you know, this is how I remember it, or this is what you're misremembering or, or whatever. Uh, and I, and I sort of appreciate that he had sort of the restraint to not get into that because he's, he's not really, you know, a, a big reader or anything like that. He reads the newspaper that that's sort of the extent of his reading. And so the fact that he read the book at all, I mean, this is the first of my books that he's read. Um, and so, yeah, you know, so that, that I appreciate him, you know, having done and, you know, engaging with it to that extent. Um, but but yeah, that that was sort of the the level of response he gave me. Okay. Um, on a more technical level, was your process different since it was essays rather than fiction? You know, I I think I would probably liken it most to my writing my first book of fiction, where in both of the processes, um, the earliest stages of it, I didn't know I was writing this book. Um, so specifically, um, I think the earliest piece that appears in the stories wrestling can tell is a is uh, one it's called a chemistry lesson. And it was um, something I'd written as a blog post, like I think like 11 or 12 years ago. Um, and it was a reflection on, basically I had this experience where um, in taking the AP chemistry exam in high school, um, my, my grandfather actually passed away um, like the week before the test was, was supposed to happen. And it led to this really kind of difficult, but kind of practical choice of like, well, do I skip the AP test I've been studying for all year and give up kind of the college credit I was hoping to get and so on and so forth. Um, to go to the funeral or do I miss like this rare family function where if I would have met all these people I'd, I'd never see again and so on and so forth just to take this test um, and I ended up staying and taking the test and it's something that, that's always sort of been something in the back of my head of like on one hand you know like I am grateful that I only had to take one co college science course now it's sort of my goal to place out of stuff um, I did I did pretty well in the test in, in a way that I don't think I would have if I had to do some sort of makeup situation month, months later um, on the other hand, it is this kind of gaping hole in kind of my family history that, you know, that my, my dad has explicitly said, like, yeah, there's a people I didn't know existed who showed up at this funeral who, like, it wasn't really cool for you to meet. Um, so, but anyway, that's a long way around to, you know, I, I wrote that, you know, just as, as a blog post, turned to a really long blog post. So I sure I had it in the back of my head, like, this is probably more than this should just be a blog post. I probably should, you know, revise this at some point and try to do something more with it. Um, but had no concept of writing a book of essays, let, let alone a book of essays about, about wrestling. Um, and in that original version, wrestling was actually just like mentioned quickly as like a connection to my grandfather. Uh, I played it up significantly, which is bringing up like the kind of wrestling that was happening in that time period, and I would have been watching at the time. So that, that in the book, that version of it, you know, factors in much more significantly. Um, but but anyway, but you know, I, I wrote that, no sense that it would be a book, and then um, the. The, the last essay of the collection, the Leo Burke finish, um, I wrote when I was in the middle of graduate school. And it's another kind of collage essay thing that's sort of heavily influenced by Maggie Nelson's style um, that I, you know, I published, you know, separately and sort of considered it the best nonfiction I'd, I'd written. And then there was another essay I wrote right after grad school about um, Dusty Rhodes and kind of his connection with his sons and how I viewed it with my father. Um, and so, you know, th those were kind of, I, I considered those three to be sort of like, like tentpole essays of, of the collection, the course sort of kind of anchor the whole thing. Um, but, but it wasn't until, you know, I decided like, oh, I'm going to do this, this essay thing and this esoteric book about wrestling, um, that I started you know, putting those together and other stuff I'd already written and then started writing kind of the other half or so of the book. Um, but I liken that again, just to the, the first, uh, short story collection, because, you know, I didn't even really 
know that you do short story collections. Like, I knew they existed. I, I, I'd read them, but I didn't necessarily have any um, sense that's what I was going to do when I started writing the earliest stories that appear in that collection. Um, it was really only in grad school that I kind of wrapped my head around, oh, wait, this should kind of be the goal. Like, like so all of these stories that I'm writing in grad school, because I think there's like six or seven stories that are ones that I wrote, or at least first drafted in my MFA program that appear in that book. Um, and, then, and then another one of the stories was one of my application stories that I applied to graduate school with, um, and the rest are stuff that, that I wrote afterwards. But um, it was a similar process of, um, just writing kind of the best short things that I knew how, and then ultimately they wound up sort of being this this bigger thing that fit together. That's interesting. That's definitely interesting. I feel like something with a universal goal like that feels like it would come together all at once. And I, and I, and I almost sort of feel as though now, like, the, the I was a little boxed in because now I sort of think in terms of books and so um on, in some ways that can be super helpful like, I think that the the link story slash novel that I was talking about you know the, the front end of the interview um like I I don't know that I would have written all those stories if I hadn't looked at it that way and been like you know thinking consciously of, oh these characters are really cool this one's got to come back in a later story and then giving them their own story later on um so that can be helpful in kind of you know generating more stuff and thinking about things in, in more complex ways um, but also I, I do sort of miss that, that, that I used to just sort of like think of stories as single units and like, I, I'm going to write this one and then I'm going to move on to something totally dramatically different. Uh, I haven't really done that in, in a few years now. And so, so there, there's a trade off there in that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, for sure. For sure. Um, so what kind of things are you working on right now? Like what, what's next? What can we expect next from you? Yeah, so 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 really, uh, my my focus has been on the that that link story slash slash novel project. Um, I I've been through all but three stories um, from from that that cluster um, and kind of given them a, a pretty intensive re revision rewrite. Um, so I'm I'm working on the, those final ones now. Um, one of which I is sort of a I would say it's like fifty percent of the old story I'm going to keep, but I'm also going to pretty dramatically change it for the other 50%. I have some some pretty good plans in mind and I'm sure I'll figure out other stuff in the drafting process. Um, and then another one where I think it was by far the weakest story of the collection, but I, I've sort of figured out um, if previously the main character of that story was just sort of um, on an island and this was his only story. And now I, he fits into a bunch of other stories now. So I kind of know this character a lot better. And so I'm, I'm gonna write that one more or less from, from scratch. I think I'm gonna kind of re rewrite that story. Um, but, but yeah, after that, then, you know, I, I got kind of some choices in, in front of me. Um, another thing that I kind of borrow from the Matt Bell book, even though I was sort of intuitively doing this before is that, um, I think things kind of need time to cool in, in between drafts. And so, um, you know, finishing up this, this run through of the manuscript, maybe polishing a couple of the pieces to start setting them out independently and seeing, seeing what happens. Um, but then working on some other projects in the meantime, before I cycle back to this, um, I do have another um, no novel that I have a pretty rough draft of that I want to kind of go back to and um, do some polishing of. Um, and then I have two other ideas for novels and kind of broad strokes that I've done some like outlining and brainstorming. I have a whole bunch of you know notes saved on my phone and my email about um, that should at least kind of get those notes together and figure out what's happening. But yeah, to, to more immediately answer your question though, it's sort of seeing through this, um, you know, link story project. Um, and, and again, kind of seeing if there might be some individual pieces I'll, I'll start sending now versus ones I'm gonna keep reworking later on. No, I mean, I'll, I'll just throw out this, this might be my bio anyway, but uh, miketeachin.com is my, my main website. And 
uh, anyone who's interested in learning more about these projects, I, I do my best to keep that pre pretty up to date. So I think everything significant is is on there. And so, um, you know, welcome folks to check that out. And there's there's contact info there. So if anyone wants to, you know, be in touch, please, please feel free. Awesome. 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 Well, it sounds like we have lots, lots of exciting things to look forward to from you in the future. Um, I, I hope it's exciting, but yeah. <laughs> they, they sound exciting to me, so. <laughs> <laughs> um so a little bit of a bonus question this is one i did not warn you about in the yeah. little email but if you could give one piece of writing advice to other writers out there what would it be oh that's a good question so um so at the risk of being a little cliche um i, I do kind of hold fast that the only way to really write is, is just to keep writing right um so um, just to, you know, keep practicing it and, and kind of keep, you know, trying and, and not being kind of deterred by failure because failure might mean that you just learn from that experience and you never come back to that story or poem or essay or whatever it is. Um, but it also might mean just, you just need more time to be able to come back to it in a, in a more effective way. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so to, you know, keep writing, to keep reading, I think that's another piece of the puzzle that um, despite being, you know, so kind of obvious and intuitive that for years I, I was sort of resistant to, you know, I, I referenced, you know, being a kid and I, I love writing before I love reading. Um, but even when I did start to love reading, I, I would often go like long stretches where I wasn't really reading anything. Um, and so, sometime in my, I think it was in my 20s, I sort of started a more regimented thing where I said, okay, I'm going to just read at least two books a month um and like one, one of those times I read like Ulysses and so like I was like okay this can just be its own thing for like two months but otherwise I'm, I'm gonna read just like, like like two books a month of like more standard length things um which became just, just sort of useful of um it's a little overly regimented for some people and even for me didn't you know, always work out but I think it was helpful just for a degree of accountability of um I'm always going to be reading something um or if I go like a month and I haven't finished a book and it wasn't like I was just reading a super long book then it's sort of like I probably should be reading a little bit more, right? Like, did I did I go that that month without watching any TV? Probably not. So, what 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 can give here, right? So, so making time for that, um, you know, continual reading, continual writing. Um, you know, I, I I'm a big believer that that everyone you know, sort of has their own way of approaching these things, and as long as it's working for you, I'm not going to tell you 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 should change it. But if it isn't working for you, then maybe you should consider changing it. Um, for, for me, I, I tend to work on my writing almost every day. Like I, I say, like, you know, not literally every day. I'd say like I have a 365 day year, probably 300 of those days I, I worked on my writing. So it's, you know, it's it's most days, but actually every day. Um, that works for me. And, and I'm someone who you know, works in small increments, like I referenced before. Um, but I know for other people that doesn't work. For, for other people, they, they need that time in between to be able to process things or just their life circumstances aren't allowing them to, to be able to do that. Um, you know, and, and I think that's one thing that, um, you know, if you, you'd asked me this question in like my you know, early 20s, I would have been you know, much more regimented about this is the way to do it, or you're based on whatever my most recent writing professor had told me. Uh, whereas now I, I sort of, you know, recognize that there's, you know, the classic different people do things different ways. And so, you know, finding what works for you and just sort of keeping at it in that vein. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. Great. No, pleasure to talk to you as well. And thanks so much for doing this. Yeah.